Well, good evening, everybody. I had an interesting day today. I had the chance to uh, have lunch with the consul, consular general of China. Oh, wow. <laughs> a pretty big deal. No. <laughs> uh, and it was very, it was actually very pleasant. Um, he and his wife were there. And I, I didn't mean it in a bad way. I just, I hate formal things. That's what I was alluding to. <laughs> I don't know what you thought I meant. But we were at the North Ranch Country Club, uh, a really lovely lady, uh, Rosemary Licata and her sister Beatrice uh, hosted it. And we have, a, apparently Thousand Oaks has a sister city in China. I don't know where it is or who it is. We're 132,000. Our sister city is 1.3 million. Um, but the, the consul uh, general was coming to visit Rosemary because she's been so, uh, her and Beatrice have been so involved in connecting these cities. And uh, she'd actually invited me to the dinner at their house, which was apparently a lovely affair. I couldn't make it. I was out of town. So she wanted me to meet him. And since the mayor couldn't do it, the mayor pro tem was giving a tour of the city. So we had lunch and uh, the conversation, interestingly enough, uh, he brought it up. I did. And he said, you know, uh, he's, he, he had done background. Apparently someone had done it for him. He said, so you're a minister. I said, yes, I am. Uh, now that's a pastor of a church. Yes. He said, uh, are you a priest? Or I said, well, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Protestant minister. He said, what denomination? I said, well, it's non-denominational Protestant. Um, he said, I, I think I understand. And he, his English was excellent. And he'd actually been the ambassador to Fiji and also the ambassador to Australia. And now he's here in the United States. And he's been doing this for 30 years. He's in his 50s. And he said, you know, I'm very interested in this. He said, uh, when I was in Washington, D.C. station there, I went to go see uh, the Billy Graham presentation. And I said, really? And, uh, and that started the conversation. Well, immediately they wanted to kind of change the topic. So... Uh, when we were doing a tour through the city hall, we had a very interesting conversation, and uh, it revolved around faith. And, and then as we went up in the balcony, Rosemary wanted to show um, the area that she's donated to the city to the prim- or to the consul general, and it overlooks kind of the boulevard, <clears throat> and I'm pointing over to Mastro's, and I said, when all this stuff is over and you're just normal and I'm normal, why don't we go to dinner? He said, I would like that. And I said, I'll tell you what, you do the flying, I'll do the buying. <laughs> And he, he thought about that flying. By. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, that would be wonderful. And it was, I really sensed that the Lord had done something special there, that, that there was a connection on a personal level where the two of us really enjoyed each other's company. So keep that in prayer. I don't know if it'll come to anything, but we'll see. So <laughs> just another day, you know what I'm saying? Good stuff. Uh, okay, so last week as we've been going through Western theology, we took a look at the five covenants. I want to pull those up for you. Um, and uh, so we, let me just refresh our memory, because some of you looked very tired last week, and I, I was probably a little long-winded, as I always am. But you had Noah, or Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And, and what we had concluded, and what I had laid out for you so that we can remember this, is that in, in the pantheon of gods, uh, in the history of the world, every god or every religion is a man working for God, Right? We're sweeping his factory floor. He's the boss. We're the employee, right? But as I took you through each of these covenants, uh, the Edemic covenant, the Noahic covenant, I went through the Abrahamic covenant. We went through with Moses and David. In every one of these cases, I showed you examples from scripture that God works for us. He works for us. And I gave you examples that he is our employee, but he is also our boss. 
And you think, well, how is that possible? How can he be our employee and also be our boss? And I said, well, have you ever had an accountant? Have you ever had a doctor? Have you ever had a, you know, you pay them to be your employee. You're paying them to tell you what to do. Are you tracking me now? And, and this, this picture that we've seen as we've gone through each of these covenants where God gives Adam the garden, he says, name everything. I'm here to bless you. And, and, and this is all yours. This is the exit sign, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eating of it, dying, you will surely die. But all this is yours and I'm here to bless you. And what were the only things that he couldn't do prior to day zero of creation is he couldn't show mercy and he couldn't show grace. And that, that comes after the fall of man. And what happens with the Noahic covenant is very similar to the Edemic covenant. Only in, in Genesis 9, I believe it is, the only thing that's added is consequences for sin. So he brings in the form of government, which is where we get government. Capital punishment is established because the sin nature has entered mankind. Violence permeated the earth. He flooded the earth. And then he said to Noah, the covenant still stands. I still work for you. But this is what you need to do to deal with what's this disease that's hit the earth. You have to hold sin in check, consequences to actions. You don't do your homework, you get an F. You speed and go past the speed limit, you get a ticket. You murder someone, you're put on death row and in California, you stay there forever. But in some places you die. Everyone tracking me so far? So he's still there to bless us. But what he's saying is the point of man, our purpose is that we wait on God. He created us to work for us. And as his creatures, he wants us to wait dependently on him for all of his benefits that he showers upon us. Trust in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart, right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You wait upon the Lord. And as we went through this concept of waiting, we saw in chapter eight, waiting is hoping in God, trusting God, trusting in his way and his time. And when we trust his way, his time, and we wait upon him, we're blessed. When we take matters into our own hands and we operate outside his context and outside his rules, things go wrong. That's why we get to Abraham. And with Abraham, he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And then we saw the, the promise and he, he cut the covenant. You remember the covenant and the fire pot passed through and, and God went by himself. He says, I don't need you to keep my promise. I'll keep my promise. You're going to fail, but I'm always going to keep that promise. I'm here to bless you. And he restores this, this understanding of man's relationship to God. Unlike any other gods in the pantheon of gods, we're not, we're not mopping or sweeping the floor of God's factory. He's working for us, but he's still our boss. And so then you come to Moses and we saw the 10 commandments and you go, wait a minute. If he gives us commandments, now he's in authority because, and he is in authority, but now it's subservient because he gives us commandments. And God says, no, 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 that's not the point of the commandments. The commandments, as I went through the North American Treaty Organization, uh, North American Treaty Organization, and we looked at the allied powers, they are independent sovereign nations that say, look, if they attack you, if the enemy attacks you, we're with you and we'll fight for you. These are the rules of engagement. We're all going to agree to these rules. And if an enemy comes in, we'll together fight that enemy. So with this idea of Moses entering into the promised land, there's going to be filled with enemies. And he's saying, this is what I expect. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. 
This is a covenant people. This is, these are the rules that, that, that flourish and cause you to be, a, to, to be numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And, and as you honor these, you have the first five, which is your relationship with me, and your second five, your relationship with each other. Your, your society will flourish. It'll be blessed. And if you keep those, I fight your enemies for you. I'm working for you. So the Jebusites and the Terabites and the Parasites and the, right? He takes them all out. Then we get to David and, and David says to Nathan, I want to build a house for the Lord. And God says, I don't need a house built with human hands. And what does God say to David? I'm going to build you a house. Now, what is that house? That house is now we know today. It's where the temple, of the Holy Spirit, and this is Western theology that all of these covenants, these five covenants that we went through are all embodied. And this is where we're coming tonight. All these covenants are embodied in one person. And that is Jesus. So the Messiah, the promised savior of the world comes through the lineage of David. I'm going to build that house for you. Moses with the 10 commandments, this idea of being a separated people and this idea that I'll fight for you. And then you go with Abraham, your descendants will be numerous as stars in the sky. And he said to Abraham, because Abraham believed God, it was accredited to him as righteousness. So before we, we move on tonight, I want to make one thing very clear for Western theology. This concept that we've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Every religion in the world, every religion in the world, we've covered this, but we have to refresh our memory. Every religion in the world is man trying to get to God by do's and don'ts. Christianity is God coming to man and putting righteousness on his account, and we receive that gift by faith. So there, there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all failed to keep the commandments. We've all failed to keep the rules. We all have that sin nature. We've all been subject to that. We've all gotten a speeding ticket. We've all gotten something. Yes? yes. No one's perfect. So the wages of sin is death. So God being completely merciful and completely just, he wants to have mercy on us. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Wages of sin is death. We deserve death. He doesn't want to give us death, so he gives us mercy, but he's also just. So if the wages of sin is death, somebody's got to pay that penalty. You tracking me so far? I can't pay the penalty for you because I'm a sinner too. I can't die in your place. We're both on death row. I got to die for my penalties. You got to die for yours. Along comes the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us in human flesh, takes on completely man, completely God. That's an excedrin headache right there. And, and as he's completely man, completely God, tempted in all ways, yet without sin, goes to the cross, which is what we're getting ready to celebrate on Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday on April 1st, which is Easter, which is the most sacred day of the entire Christian calendar. And all of Christianity revolves around the fact that the tomb is empty and Christianity has a solution to what all of us have in common. And that's death. The clock's ticking. Younger ones don't think it's going to happen. Older ones, tell me more, right? (laughs) And so here we are with this idea that every religion in the world is man trying to get to God by do's and don'ts. Christianity is God coming to man. We receive him by faith and acknowledging, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your righteousness put on my account. I believe you died in my place, paid the penalty. And I, I, I wait upon you and I receive you and I trust you done. Now that's the simplicity of the gospel preached 
Gospel is the Greek word means oulangelion, translated in English, good news. Good news is we're all going, or the bad news is we're all going to hell. The good news is Christ has given us a way out. Okay? And, and hell is the same thing. It's just separating from God, walking out the exit sign with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, I want to do things my way. You're going to end up being one of the parasites, Jebusites, terabytes. You're going to be out there. But here we are. By faith, we receive him. So we've been saved by grace through faith. What's cool about that? Nobody comes to God and reconciles. And the word religion is, is relangari in, the, in Latin, which means to reconnect, relink with God. Nobody relinks with God based on how moral you are. Nobody in this room is better than anybody else. Some of you have had a really good day and you've been prayerful and you've been thoughtful and you haven't really done anything ex- exceedingly awful. Some of us have just dragged our sorry selves in here tonight and we just got a mess behind us and we're just even hard to pay attention because we're getting flashbacks of all the terrible things we've been doing. I, I can see that on some of the faces. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's like you're glowing. But the reality is before the cross, the ground at the foot of the cross is all level. And your righteousness is just as valid as my righteousness by faith because it's his righteousness put on our account. I'm not righteous because of what I've done. I'm righteous because of what he did and gave to me. So our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more past, present, and future. So what does that do for the human being? It creates a government and creates a people that recognizes the value of the individual. And as we've been going through the American Legacy series, this idea of being created equal, not in capacity, but in dignity. So I can't do to you what you don't give me consent to do. So the consent of the governed in the Declaration of Independence. And so what it, what it does, it creates community. And, and as our founders understood, the greatest form of government is local government because we're, we're processing together. Not centralized, not an oligarchy, not a few elite running the many. Instead, we're all working together. Even the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is found in the word Elohim, singular plurality. Let us make man in our image. Remember with Adam, the covenant? There was the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. And after he created the, the light and he created the darkness, he created the oceans and he created the creatures. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good. Tov, 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 tov. And then he gets to man, he says, it is very good. And he says, let, let, it's, it's not just a part of creation. It's let us make man in our image, relational. Trinity, relational. So we dwell with one another. And what's the best way to dwell with one another? Tell the truth. Don't covet, don't steal, don't lie. It creates a community that's unbelievable, doesn't it? We have a sin nature, so it has to be in check. So only immoral people can have a constitutional republic where it's this idea that we're represented by each other. And the sovereign, the people creating the image of God gives that authority to a representative by consent, holds them accountable. And guess what? They're our employee, but they're also our boss. I work for you as a city councilman. I'm your employee, but I'm also your boss. And I just spent $18 million of your money to give you new roads. So there you go. Do you understand that? So now we see the embodiment of all these covenants coming into Christ, which transforms the world, turns it from this, this idea of monarchies and oligarchies, and all of a sudden this concept of democracy that had already been brewing in Greece, and we'd seen a little aspects of it in Rome, 
And, and even with their experiments in democracy, they still ended up in, in polytheistic worship and they, they ended up imploding because they could never deal with the sin nature of man. This idea that we have this, this selfishness inbred in us. Left to our vote, we're not improving. Evolution means we're improving, right? Hello? Well, you would think after this thousand, many thousands of years, we, we'd have accomplished something, but it seems like it's getting worse. And, and, and we remove God out of the equation. And, and I want you to look at something. When prayer was removed from school, and I'll take you through that, and we actually did the study before, look at all the, 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 the social factors related to it. The minute the prayer was removed from school, SAT scores dropped, teen pregnancy went up, drug addiction went up, everything went up, all the, 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 the social factors just went out of whack the minute prayer was removed. Why? Well, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Blesses a nation whose God is the Lord. If there is a God and he rules in the affairs of men and a sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without his full knowledge, wouldn't it make sense that if we're living on his earth, breathing his air, drinking his water and eating his food, we would run, we would operate by his rules. And his rules are to bless us and work for us when we wait upon him. What does wait mean? Let's go through it again. Hoping in God, trusting in God, his way. And here's the tough one, his time. Now it seems so lovely, doesn't it? We just wait on God, just kind of get a lemonade and a lounge chair and wait on God. Isn't that lovely? It doesn't work that way. He's always stretching man in a fallen world to wait upon him. And he puts us into some really tough areas. And the amazing thing about God is he's never late. He's always on time, but he is seldom if ever early. And when we think he's late... We have no idea. We think, God, this is the deadline. God goes, I don't work by man's deadlines. You go, what? Oh, okay. And then the panic sets in and you want to take things into your own hands and run your credit card instead of wait on the Lord to provide. And you're lonely and you don't have uh, somebody to watch sunsets with. So you, you, instead of waiting on the Lord, like Adam did and resting in him, you go to borderline. Some of you met there, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you, 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 the idea is you wait on him for his provision. And how do you know what his provision is? By his word. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. That's why our founders, the very first public school act they ever did was the old Satan deluder act. They realized that man could only be controlled when he was ignorant. And the scripture says faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. So if children could learn how to read, they would understand who they are, creating the image of God. What's the only way that man can rule over another man is to make him ignorant so he doesn't know these things. You see how that works? So we come to this place where Christ is the embodiment of all the covenants that have gone before. He's king, he's lamb, he's God, he's everything. He's this Messiah. And we're going to see this tonight in this, this concept. And, and remember, one of the things we looked at in these covenants is this God is, is patron. We're the client human. We wait on him. We love him. We worship him. We have a reliance on him. We honor him by faith. What does he do? He gives us love, mercy, support, protection, grace. And this is that highway that happens between the, the creator and the creature in his image. And he adores us. And, and the scripture says Abba, which in, in Aramaic is Papa. He's that kind of a relationship where it's his children. And it's a fascinating concept. God isn't served by human hands as though he needs anything. 
He loves to serve mankind. He loves to bless us. And he loves us to wait on him. And so we see this embodiment. But here's, here's the rub tonight, and this is what we're going to take a look at. He works for us. He's our employee. He's also our boss. And he gives us one requirement. Wait on me. Wait. And I already defined that wait, hoping in God, trusting God, his way, his time. You think, I can do that. Really? Well, let's take a look at a few folks tonight. And one in particular, before we begin, and I love this concept. It's called the foolishness of God. You know what? I just want to tell you something tonight. Waiting on God, hoping in God, trusting him, his time, his way. He's going to take you on an unbelievable amusement park ride. You're going to go up hills and down and sideways and loops. Waiting on him is a ride you can't imagine. I want to show you a scripture that the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a social mess. You had a, a man sleeping with his, his father's wife. You had people drunk at the communion table. Sexual immorality in Corinth, a thousand temple prostitutes had come down and plied their trade. And every woman that lived in the city one time a year had to serve in the temple of Aphrodite. The whole place was sexually just destroyed. Every family was screwed up. They put the fun in dysfunction. And, and all of a sudden Christianity comes into this world. And this idea of forgiveness, and this idea of trusting God, waiting on God. And it, it creates this revolution, this social, social revolution in this community. And a church is established. And Paul writes to this church in the early chapters of the very first epistle. Epistle means letter. In the very first epistle to the church at Corinth, he writes this. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we don't have a cross. Is there a cross here? This, this cross right here. This is foolishness. And let me just share with you the foolishness of the cross. Look at me. That God would be nailed to a tree. That's our salvation. End of story. Let's have a good night. God bless you all. The God of the universe who holds the heavens in the span of his hand would leave the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross. And nails wouldn't hold him. He's God. What held him is love for you and me. Why was he allowing himself to be nailed? Because somebody had to die. And he had you on his mind. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then he says this, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Who is the guy that died today? Stephen Hawking. Hawking. Brilliant man. He would be considered by this passage foolish. He's He's very knowledgeable. Knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is using that knowledge for the glory of God. You can die very knowledgeable and very stupid. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. I mean, here you have Stephen Hawking and God doesn't exist. This man that can, can calculate unbelievable 
mathematical equations and looks at the expanse of the universe and says, there's no God out there. You remember the story that was told to the, to the kindergartners and the graduating Stanford seniors, the riddle, what is greater than God, more evil than the devil, the rich need it, the poor have it. And if you eat it, you'll die. And the Stanford seniors are like, I don't know. And the little kindergartners go, well, I know what it is. Nothing. They didn't have to get past the first sentence. What's greater than God? Nothing. What's more evil than the devil? Nothing. What do the rich need? Nothing. What do the poor have? Nothing. <laughs> what does it if you eat? You'll die. Nothing. This, they, they were so knowledgeable that they had no wisdom. And you say, well, this is the struggle because to acknowledge a God means to acknowledge submission. And if you want to rule over man, you want to be in charge. And so you define God in your image, and that's what they did. And every other religion in the world creates a God that can be, you, you can subject man to serve you. Not in Christianity. You come to the God of Christianity, of Western theology, you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he'll lift you up. And you don't come to subdue man, you come to serve man. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. A total transformation in governmental or civic understanding all developed because of Western theology. Anyone tracking me? Yes. Pretty fascinating. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, verse 21, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of the message preached. What's the foolishness? God left the glory of heaven's throne, died in humiliation on an earthly cross. He was buried and resurrected. And if you believe in him, you'll be cleansed of all your sins, past, present, and future. And you'll be saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. That's foolishness. You mean I don't have any say in it? I don't do it? I can't earn it? I'm a good person. Why do I need a savior? Who keeps your heart beating at night when you're asleep and your lungs moving? I'm a self-made man. Really, what part of yourself did you make? <laughs> it goes on to say, for Jews request a sign. Give me a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. They were just always studying stuff. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. It's a stumbling block. I thought the Messiah was going to come and conquer Rome. I didn't expect him to die on a cross. I mean, you read the book of Mark and it gets to the conclusion. And the amazing thing about Mark, you think it's all cattywampus? It's an amazing book. It's in groups of threes, the way it's broken down. And in each groups of threes, first you see a blind man, then you see the feeding of thousands, and then you see Christ reveal himself. And then blind and feeding and then reveal. And he does each of these so that, you know, as, as Mark's writing, he's going, I get it. The blind then can see. Then the Lord feeds these multitudes or walks on water or takes them out on the ocean. The disciples have no faith. And they've seen thousands fed and they have one loaf going, how do we eat? What are we going to do? And the Lord just says, you lack faith. Don't you get it? I am the God of the universe. Trust me. So he calms the storms. They go, who is this? It comes, even though the winds and the waves obey him. And it's a revelation of the covenantal God all encapsulated in Christ. And so he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here we go. This is the one tonight because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. What is the foolishness of God? What is the weakness of God? <laughs> I can tell you what the weakness is. I can tell you what the foolishness is. We're going to begin with the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The foolishness of God. 
everyone who reads that in the Bible just struggles with it. Foolishness of God. I'm going to give you five examples of the foolishness of God. Ready? That's a good one. Does anyone know what that is? Noah's Ark. I mean, you, you think about Noah's Ark and you go through this, this whole idea in Genesis 6. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for over 100 years. God's going to flood the earth as we covered in the Noahic Covenant, second portion of the five that we covered. And he's building an ark, cubits. You ever hear the comedy routine, what's a cubit? You know, like, I want this big and that big and, and two of every animal. And the, the two worms are sitting there watching and going, weren't there three of us? And they see Noah fishing. Oh, okay. <laughs> an ark. An ark. Build an ark where there's no water. And he gives him the dimensions. And he's building this thing for 100 years. Okay. And violence has covered the earth. It's a mess. And at the time, millions of people. And so what happens? People coming along going, what are you doing? <laughs> I just had a conversation with God, and he told me to build an ark. Here? It's like building an ark in a basement. How are you going to get it out? There's no water. What's, how's it going to float? Well, I'm just building it. And, and why? Well, he's going to flood the earth and two of every kind of animal, and anyone who wants to get on, and this is going to be the, how is it going to be thing? <laughs> And everyone who walks by for a hundred years mocks him and his family and everyone else working on the ark. Everyone mocks him. I, um, I, I was recalling this. I worked at an Armenian church and I remember there was an elderly man who had spoken about coming from Turkey and Mount Ararat region. And uh, this is the best I could recall. Uh, the, the idea that there was, there, it was supposed to be made out of white oak and bituminous pitch the ark. And there's no white oak for 200 miles around Mount Ararat. There's no white oak for 200 miles around Mount Ararat. And yet at 14,800 feet, there's this massive deposit of white oak. It's just, it's huge. And he spoke of, of, you know, just go online. You can see all kinds of stories in relation to it. And, and people, you know, Dr. Walter Martin held a piece of it with the bituminous pitch and a number of folks have dug in that area. And here he is building this and everyone's just laughing at him, but he did it. And that's, that's this idea of the foolishness of God that he builds an ark where there is no water. And it's at 14,800 feet on Mount Ararat. You can follow the story. You can say it doesn't exist, but just go ahead and do some homework. And why expose that and bring it out? And I'm not talking about conspiracy theories or anything like that. Just go online and do a little research. I can show you some videos that'll blow you away. One of the most amazing is the one your husband did in relation to Egypt and how the entire history of the world has been moved back when they start to look at it. And these are folks that aren't even believers that are looking at it going, you know what? Moses was here. This all ties in. It's one of the most amazing stories. And these are very high-level, well-educated English Oxford folks. And it'll blow your mind. And so you see this, and this is the foolishness of God. He had to wait 100 years to see this come to fruition. We get tired of waiting 100 minutes. Hello? We get, wait, we get tired of waiting 100 seconds. And how many people are sick of the political climate and all the violence and all the misery? Anyone? Just, okay. 
they said that it was inundated with violence and the entire world was darkened and in a mess. And he's building it in the mockery and he's the only one. There's no Christian radio station. There's no Christian bookstores. There's no churches to go to. It's just him and his family and they're being ridiculed the entire time. So just quit whining. He's waiting. And in the process of waiting, the ark settles and that covenant is established as we covered before with the consequences so that a Noahic covenant, so governments established on the earth. And now that government contends with the oligarchies of the world. And this guy comes on the scene, Abraham. Remember him? Your descendants will be as numerous as stars in the sky, sands in the sea. And, and you want to talk about the foolishness of God? He's 100 years old. His wife is in her late 90s. And God says, after he cut a covenant, and he told, God told him, your descendants, and, and, and uh, Abraham's telling everybody, uh, we're going to have a kid. We're going to have so many people. And, you know, Sarah's like, we're what? <laughs> and in her 90s, it's like, this isn't happening. And he even takes matters into his own hands, steps out the, outside the covenant and puts together Ishmael. Do you remember that one? Sleeps with Hagar, the handmaid. And, and Ishmael now, direct descendants of, of the Islamic world. You can do your own research on that. And he, he says, no, 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 God's going to do this. He has to be refreshed in his memory of it. And, and Sarah's thinking, I'm not having a baby at this age. You're not going to find a doctor who says I'm capable of having a baby. And all of a sudden, she's pregnant with Isaac. Isaac means laughter because she laughed when she heard she was going to have a baby because she was so old that this ain't going to happen. That's the foolishness of God. And when the promise was made to Sarah and Abraham, years happened. And you can imagine them just going, this is so stupid. This is so stupid. Why am I praying to a God I can't see? That's called faith. Faith is believing in things not seen. You're trusting. Yeah, but how do I know he exists? Well, as I've said a thousand times before, I've never met the builder or designer of this building, but I know they exist because this entire place screams of a designer and order as does the universe. Things don't just happen. And, and if you're tired of waiting, come up with some stupid idea of how it all came about. Oh, we evolved from a single cell creature. That single cell creature got a wart, and then all of a sudden we had fins. Just add billions of time, billions of years to it, and that's how it happened. Let me show you the incredible craziness of that. It takes, I believe it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does in creation. If I had a watch, I took it off and I put it on the ground. Leather straps, a whole bit, bev- beveled, a whole thing, Right? I lay that on the ground and we come along one day and we go, oh, oh, how did that get there? Well, you have no idea. Amazing story, mind you. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You see, billions and billions of years, it began with sand and the wind and then the heat and then volcanic and then the, and then it created this crystal circular without any defect. And then the metal work, it just happened to fall into intricate design with the jewels placed p- properly. And it dates, actually, with a calendar on it. 
And oh, the leather strips, cow, lightning hit it, strips fell, bird came, poked, actually perfectly segmented. And then here it is. Now, who's the idiot? Every single cell in your body is intricate and, and unique. And it's, it's complex. We're not evolving. We're adapting. We're not evolving. There's no transitional creatures. And, and this is the idea. And so Abraham is trusting in God. And he trusts when it doesn't make any sense. And when the entire world is ridiculing, that's what God does to us. I don't know about you, but that's kind of cruel in a lovely sort of way. But you know what he's doing? A faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. Because Christians are like English tea. You don't know what's in them until you put them in hot water. Right? They talk about the refiner's fire. And you heat it up and the slag floats to the surface and the the metallurgist skims off the slag, all the impurities. And he knows that the, the metal is pure when he can see his reflection in the metal. That takes a lot of heat and a lot of time. And what's God wanting to do? He wants the world to see what he looks like in and through you because you've been created in his image. How you live, how you walk, how you wait, how you trust. How you develop, how you operate, the governments you establish, the way you treat each other. This is the fascinating thing about it. And he does this and he begins this, this restoration of mankind through Adam, or excuse me, through Adam, then Noah, and then Abraham. And then we get to this guy. This is one of my favorites. You want to talk about the foolishness of God? This is a great one. Check this one out. Moses, right? What a crazy story. And how does it all begin? His life is segmented in 40-year segments. 40 years, he's the... He's educated in all the wisdom of the, of the Egyptians. He's handsome in word and deed. The next 40 years, he's in the backside of the Midian desert. He's just turned into a leathery lizard. And then the back half, or the, the final third of his life, from 80 to 120, he's the deliverer of the Israelites, 2 million people. I'm thinking at 80, that's the last thing I want to be doing is, is nursing 2 million people. You know, where are we going now? Well, this is crazy. I don't believe it. Where's the food? Come on, let's go. I don't know. I just, I don't know. Why didn't, why didn't you get me when I was 40 years old? We could have done a lot together. I had uh, vitality. <laughs> and then 80, you put me out here and I'm turning into a lizard. And now, now you want me to deliver them and walk me through the desert. <laughs> Let's go back to that. <laughs> Waiting, hoping in God, trusting his timing, his way. You see, God has to reduce man to a minimum that he might pour in his maximum. The person who said that was uh, Craig Lindquist's grandpa, Alan Redpath. That's a powerful statement. God wants you to trust him. And he has to take all your self-effort and all your cockamamie ideas of how you're going to fix the world. And he wants you to wait on him by his word and his way. How do you learn God's will? By his word. And you got to spend time. And that faith comes. And what is that faith? That's stretching, waiting, trusting. It develops, it creates, it's fascinating. And imagine how God tests you. You want to talk about testing. He goes to a burning bush and he's like, what is this peyote? What have I done? I, the bush is burning. It's not being consumed. He goes, Lord, 
He says, take your sandals off for where you're standing is holy ground. He takes his sandal. I don't even want so much as the, the, the sole of your, of your shoes to get in the way of a relationship with me. You trust me completely. He says, take the staff in your hand, put it on the ground, turns into a snake, grab it by the tail. You don't ever grab a snake by the tail. He grabs it by the tail, turns back into a staff. He's like, wow, Lord. Okay, what are we doing? You're going to go in and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Okay, so you're, you want me to go to the greatest empire on the face of the earth with the largest army, an 80-year-old Jewish man, to tell him to let all of his slaves go and ruin their economy? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and, and who do I tell him, uh, who, who, who am I going to tell Pharaoh has sent me? I am that I am. Okay, okay. He's <laughs> like, Popeye, I am that I am. Can we get some air conditioning? Because I'm on fire. <laughs> he, says, he says, tell him I am that I am. And, and tell the Jews that. Okay, okay, all right. He goes in, he tells him, I am has sent me. Oh, okay. And he goes to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Who sent you? God sent me. He said to him, who is God? This is what Pharaoh says. Who is God? that I should obey him. That's a good one. Because that's pretty much every man's response. Especially when it doesn't go our way. We quit. Ted Turner grew up in a Christian home, gave up on it. When his brother died and God didn't answer his prayers the way he wanted. Direct descendant of the Mayflower Compact, William Bradford, uh, the couple that I shared with you, a direct descendant, a young man served in World War II. His wife slept with another man before they got married. When they got married, she confessed to him. He was so irritated by it. He divorced her after having had two kids. He abandoned the Christian faith. His parents had prayed that he'd be a missionary. Who did he become? Hugh Hefner. Direct descendants, William Bradford, Mayflower Compact. Who is God that I should obey him? How dare he allow bad things to happen to me? All things work together for good with those who love God and called according to his purpose. We still go through trials. We still go through the, the refiner's fire, don't we? We're still in hot water so we can see what comes out. We're going to be tested. A faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. People want to, they, they live on the same earth you're living on. They want to see how you're going to respond. They're waiting to see if this God is real because you've been created in his image. Do you trust him? And you're going to go through those fires. You're going to go through things like this. And what did God do? You know, Pharaoh gave him a hellacious time. Finally, he lets him go. Two million Jews are walking through the desert. And Pharaoh says, you know what? Our economy is collapsing. All of our slaves are gone. Musters his army and chases him. Mountains on the right, mountains on the left. Pharaoh's army behind and they hit the Red Sea. Not a really good battle position. They don't have the high ground. They don't have anywhere to retreat. They're finished. And they have no weaponry. Staff, come, get you. Right? So Moses gets along with the Lord, says, what do I do? And God says, gather the people, walk them to the water's edge. Okay, okay. Hey, everybody, we're going to put our backs up against the water instead of hold our line. Everyone over here, what what are we doing? They're coming. I know they're coming. Just everyone here. Come on. Ah! And what's going to happen? You'll see what's going to happen, Lord. Raise your staff. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Oh, keep that up. They all go through on dry ground. Just put it down. 
Just as Pharaoh's army's in, everyone drowns. You can even do some research on that. It's kind of interesting what they've discovered in the locations of where they think they cross. It's fascinating. You take a look at it. But here's the interesting thing. I was at Fresno State. I had a professor. And he would always dismiss the scriptures as being hokey and fanciful and mythological. And he said, you know, the Red Sea is known as the Reed Sea, the Sea of Suf. It's only six inches deep and it's a marsh area. And the wind blew in a specific way. So it looked like the waters were separated and it was dry where they walked, but then the winds receded. And I, and you know, and, and I thought about that and I raised my hand cause I'd heard it before I raised my hand. I said, you've created a greater miracle. And he says, what's that? I said, how did the Egyptian army drown in six inches of water? <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's faith. And what is this idea of waiting on God, hoping him and trusting him? How? His way? What? His time. And it's not a lounge chair with a lemonade. You're surrounded by enemies. And we've got this NATO compact. You remember the one that we got with Moses and the Ten Commandments? You do what I say and live by my rules, and I've got them. I'll take care of them. You just do what I'm telling you to do. I'll take care of all the rest. How does that affect a culture? How does that change a world? How does that apply to a government? Let's go one more. Actually, two more. This is, this is what a cool one. Uh, this one's Joshua chapter 6. Joshua enters in. Moses dies. Doesn't come into the promised land. Joshua comes in. God starts you know, wiping out the armies in the promised land. They're keeping the covenant of the Ten Commandments. God's going before them. Fear is just absolutely you know, saturated the promised land. People are frightened. Jericho is a stronghold. If they don't take Jericho, the Jews are done. This is, this is all in. Now, Jericho, the walls, estimated 65 feet high and many portions 15 feet thick. It's an impregnable fortress, and they get there. Now, if they don't take Jericho, they're done. And Joshua, and by the way, they entered into the promised land. They were outnumbered 10 to 1, just so you know, without any weaponry, just so you know. So they enter in. And they're inundated with wealth that the Egyptians gave them, so everybody wants to come and take their money. But the fear of the Lord's gone before them. And, and Joshua goes to get along with the Lord, and he says, okay, <laughs> I don't have any idea how to take Jericho. And he waits on the Lord. Remember the captain of the Lord's army, and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? He says, neither. He says, the question is, are you for me or are you against me? It's not if I'm on your side or are you on my side. That's the Christophany appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. <laughs> And Joshua realizes, I'm drinking his water, breathing his air, living on his dirt, eating his food. I'm going to do things his way. He's the general. He's calling the shots. Okay, I get it. He gets that refresher course, and he goes and gets alone with the Lord. He waits on him. He says, what's the battle plan, Lord? He says, here's a battle plan. Okay, this can be great. Just a nuclear weapon, and we're done, and we got the whole land? No, no, we're going to stretch you a little bit. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Okay, stretching. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. He says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to mass the children of Israel, and I want you to march around Jericho on the first day. Just march around. Like within archery range? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can put up shields if you want, but march around. Okay. What about the next day? Oh, you're going to do that for six days. Really? And the seventh day? Seventh day. This is a kicker. On the seventh day, you're going to blow horns. What do you think? I'm thinking, is there another God up there? 
Imagine him going to, to his generals and, okay, what are we doing? Are we going to take battering rams? No, 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 not doing that. Are we going to take, you know, ladders? And no, 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 no. Are we going to do trebuchets? No, 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 no. Late at night, secret, you know, jumping out. No, 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 no. Tre- no uh, uh, Just a head on a, no, no, no. What is it? <laughs> this is a great plan. Just sit down and get a lemonade. Here's what we're going to do. Six days, we're going to march around. Seventh day, ready? Uh-huh. We're going to blow trumpets. <laughs> now, f- took a lot of faith for Joshua to say that to the generals. Took more faith for the generals to go, well, okay, he, part of the Red Sea. We've heard of the renown of the Lord. He's taking care of all the other enemies. Our faith is growing. We're trusting. Uh, we can do all things for Christ who strengthens us. Okay, all right, let's do this. And sure enough, six days, they go around. Seventh day, they blow. And if you look at the ruins today, it's like a... A big hand pushed the walls out like a flower opening up. I mean, that's just fascinating. You can dismiss it and write it off. Just do some archaeology. And what's fascinating about the Bible is everything they said wasn't in the Bible archaeologically. You just go to Israel. This is one of my favorite things going to Israel. Every time we go there, they've discovered a new thing that proves the archaeological existence in the Bible. So every time you come up with some sort of fancy theory, archaeology just proves you. Boom, 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 boom. And then we'll finish with this one. This is a picture I actually took. This is the lovely Jordan River uh, out, out in the desert. You know, um, when you drop down towards the Dead Sea. And the line is, I think, Syria on one side and um, Israel on the other. And it, is, it, it looks just like that. And I, I can't wait to go to Israel and be baptized in the Jordan. And there is a baptismal site that is in this location that is run by the, the Muslim groups. And they actually come there to see it. Nobody gets baptized there because you get up and you're just like silted. And it's just nasty because it's so downstream. There's cups floating in it and beer cans. And it's just, it's awful. And you look at that and you think, I don't want to get baptized. We, we typically right up at the headwater where the Galilee is. Uh, Calvary Chapel built a baptismal site. It's beautiful. The water's clean and clear and there's little fish that nibble at your heels to give you exfoliation. And it's just so, and they give you a robe and it's nice. You don't ever get baptized here. And so what's fascinating about this is uh, in the, in the passage of scripture, when, when um, Naaman, second Kings chapter five, Naaman is the uh, commander of the armies of Syria and he's conquered and dominated. And Elijah, Elisha is the prophet. And uh, Naaman is just running roughshod over the entire region. And all of a sudden, Naaman comes down with a deadly disease. It, it's a death knell. It's the worst thing you can hear in that culture, leprosy. It's contagious. You have to be separated. He's dying of leprosy. His body's riddled with leprosy. And he hears that there's a prophet in Israel that heals And he sends a wagon train of supplies, gold, money. He gets there and he says, I need the prophet to heal me. Gehazi is Elisha's servant. Elisha says, go out and tell him I don't want any of his gold. Just tell him to go dip in that cesspool seven times. Now, that's not like having to blow a horn in Jericho or parting the Red Sea. It's just go dip in that seven times. And uh, Naaman says, you know, back in Damascus, we had two rivers, and I can't remember the names of them, Aparpath and some other one. He says, those rivers are beautiful. Why do I have to be baptized in this cesspool? I'm not doing it. Let's go. 
Well, his assistant says, General, if he'd asked you to conquer countries, you would have done it. Yes, I would have. It's simple. Just dip there seven times. Scripture says he went down first time, came up, still leopard. Seventh time he comes up. Scripture says his skin was like that of a baby. His skin was like that of a baby. A newborn baby. That's the foolishness of God. Now I say that to you because what is American exceptionalism? What is this idea that we have a culture of people that can overcome overwhelming odds and accomplish great things and have a moral course to our lives and believe that there's something greater than ourselves? One of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Have you ever seen that? And there's this, there's, there's this subtle aspect to our culture that's fascinating about trusting in this invisible God. And, and here, I want to show you what the foolishness of God is. You ready? You can write this down if you want. The foolishness of God is divine wisdom demanding faith. And you know what the weakness of God is? The weakness of God is God would humble himself to become a man to be crucified in your place and my place so that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many so that we could serve one another. And it creates a form of government where we serve one another out of consent and willingness. And we're moral. We tell the truth. We raise our children to do the same. Our business dealings are honest. We humble ourselves. It's not about amassing wealth or subjecting other human beings to humiliation. It's about being morally significant because we have been touched by a God who his weakness is what made the world strong. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And the foolishness is he demands faith. It's his wisdom demanding faith. If you can trust me here, you'll trust me when you lay your life down. So on June 8th, 1944, young men would storm the beaches of Normandy. I think it was June 6th. Storm the beaches of Normandy, never to see a family, never to be married, never to raise kids, so that you could sit here and rightly open your Bibles and study what we're doing tonight without any fear of retribution or being shut down or anyone trying to subject you to causing you to be their slave. Why? Because they understood what it was like to serve. Greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. And those young men that died in Normandy didn't even know you, but they're your friend. And the freedom you enjoy is what they secured. Let me go further and on and on and on. One in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. Less than 5,000 soldiers were remaining able to muster in Valley Forge in the worst winter in 1776. They marched 11 miles to cross the Delaware in the worst snowstorm in the eastern seaboard, and many of them froze to death on their way over. And when everyone else was sitting by their fire and getting ready to have a Christmas dinner on December 24, 1776, they were preparing to fight the Hessians. And the war was over, conscriptions were up, and this experiment in liberty would have been over. And you would be somewhere else. But they marched, they fought, they conquered. They turned the tide of the war. And it was this article that was written by Thomas Paine. These are the times that try men's souls. A summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this season shrink from the duty of their country. But those who serve it now deserve the love and respect of all men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. 
that, that was so inspiring. Washington passed around all the troops, and that's what secured what you're enjoying right now for 241 years. And times are tough in California. Waiting on God, his time, his way, trusting him, doing what he says. You don't understand, people are going to laugh at me. So what? You know what? You'd think I would have learned faith from a pulpit. I'm named Robert Roy Walter McCoy. I'm named after this man. Rear Admiral Robert Broussard Early. He was a, he and his wife, Lois, were childless. I became their godson. I was named after him. I was running for the state assembly. My mom had died. My dad was in a home with Alzheimer's. And Uncle Bob was the patriarch of our family. I went to go visit him in the throes of the, the campaign and the primary when I was getting beat, beat up by my own party and I was out of money. He was 99 years old. I was going to miss his 100th birthday, so I went to go wish him a happy birthday early. Here he was on his 100th birthday. Still did 100 sit-ups a day and still drove a car. Not well, but he drove a car. (laughs) I want to talk to you about how he gave faith to me. I, I was so disillusioned. I was so discouraged. And he looked at me and he yelled at me. 50 years I've known him, 50, 51 years at that point, 50 years. I'd never heard him angry. And I was going, I'm out of money. We're losing the election. I my own party's attacking me. I felt like I've led these folks on a rosy California's and going to hell in a handbag. In the middle of my whining, he puts his hand up, shaking with age. He goes, stop it. <laughs> Paralyzed me, getting spanked by a 99-year-old man. He says, you don't know tough. I was 16 years old in the Great Depression. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. Had it not been for an appointment to the Naval Academy, I would have never received a college degree. And he said, Rob, I was a lieutenant on the USS Casson on December 7, 1941. And they sank my ship. He got a silver star. He pulled his shipmates out of the water. The, the harbor was on fire. His shipmates were dead, and he's recounting it. He said, the next day we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations, and you, Rob, being a history major, don't realize that we had the 21st largest military on the face of the earth because we were in isolationist mode. We weren't even prepared for war. We had just gone through the Great Depression, and we were still in the midst of it. And he said, do you know we took on that two-fronted war? And he said the, the, the sign-ups were around the building for people volunteering for service. He said, we lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, brought both of those fascist nations to their knees, and floated that same fleet into Tokyo Harbor to accept the surrender of the Japanese. And when it was all said and done, we came back to the United States and started the greatest industrial revolution in the history of the country and cut federal spending by 50%. And he looked at me and he said, quit whining. And go finish what you started. Where does somebody get that kind of faith? He said to me one time, you don't engage in something like that unless you know you're right. And I remember I thought I was going to do him a favor by telling him about the Lord. 
I remember sharing the sinner's prayer with my godmother as she was dying of lung cancer. And she says, Rob, I've done this before, but for your sake, I'm going to do it. I said, Aunt Lois, I've never seen you pray or do this. She says, Rob, my generation prayed quietly and we lived our faith. Amazing about our generation, we talk about our faith, but we don't live it. They went to war. They engaged in civic government. They built a nation. We whine about it and profess Christ. Nineteen thirty-eight, unemployment was running at twenty percent. Twenty percent unemployment for eight years. It had been twenty percent. Nineteen thirty-eight. It was one of the most awful times in the history of the of the world. On, and I, ha- I have the date here, and I want to re- remember it. Yeah, do you remember Sea Biscuit? Beat War Admiral. The whole nation was depressed. And this little horse, watch the story, it's fascinating. The whole nation was depressed. This little horse beats War Admiral, this massive purebred owned by rich people. I'm not doing class warfare, but I'm just pointing out that everyone, nobody had money. And they were banking on this little guy. The, the horse ended up dying of a heart attack because he just ran its heart out. And, and on November 1st, 1938, that's when it beat War Admiral. And it was the, the height of the depression. And, and all of a sudden... Nazi Germany is moving into Czechoslovakia, amassing troops. They get an agreement with the Munich uh, Accord to, to take the Sudetenland. And Cha- Neville Chamberlain comes back and says, we've achieved peace in our time. And, and they immediately, they start to massacre Czechoslovakians and all the intelligentsia. And, and, and a few months later, they'd be into Poland in the Blitzkrieg. And by 1940 all hell would break loose and everything would be imploding and Chamberlain would resign and Churchill would come to office and America still wasn't going to engage and everyone was scared and everybody was frightened and we weren't prepared for war and all hell was breaking loose and something fascinating and awful happened on November 10th, 1938. And I want to read to you. And this was in the front page of the New York times on November 10th, 1938 in 24 hours, A thousand Jews were dead and more than 30,000 arrested. A tenth of all German Jews. This was not the act of a mob, but of a regime showing that Hitler's threats against the Jews were no bombast. Disgust with the distrust of Hitler was evident in overwhelming condemnation of Kristallnacht. In most Western newspapers, even the propiesement times of London deplored a black day for Germany. Yes, if voices were raised, not an official finger was lifted to save 300,000 Germans now proved to be in moral danger. The story is retold by Michael Morris in a 1985 study, The Unwanted European Refugees in the 20th Century. No gates were opened, no quotas increased, no help extended by great powers to trap the Jews. Kristallnacht began, and they began to annihilate what would ultimately be 6 million Jews. And it all began November 10th, 1938. In 1918, a man went to war, in the war to end all wars. His name was Irving Berlin. And uh, there were a lot of patriotic songs, and he was writing a song, and he realized so many patriotic songs, nobody wants it, so he put it in a trunk and left it there. And at this most critical time in America's history where the depression was so great, and lives were imploding, and Europe was falling, and Jews were being massacred, and Hitler was rising, and it seemed as though evil was permeating the earth, a 200-plus pound woman walks onto a stage by the name of Kate Smith. And I want to 
I want to share with you my Godfather's favorite song. Every time he heard it, it blessed him. And oh, how sad that today in America, we don't sing like this. And in the course of this, you're going to see clips of a movie. And in the movie, you're going to see Ronald Reagan. You're going to see Irving Berlin. He gave this song to her. They composed it to music. And on one of the darkest nights in American history and world history, Kate Smith comes out and she sings this. So let's lower the lights and show the video. And we'll close with this tonight. On this November 11th, the 21st anniversary of the armistice of World War I, this then is the record of those who said they had no more territorial ambitions. Czechoslovakia annihilated, Albania invaded. Is the number you have just heard. And now we take great pleasure in presenting to you the star of our program, Miss Kate Smith. Hello, everybody. It is my happy privilege to introduce a new song, God Bless America. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear
kind of makes you think of Blake, doesn't it? Makes you think of a lot of things. We're going to be in this yet, Mom. that song out of Yip Yip Yap Hank 22 years ago. Sounds better now. Real quick, the reason why it was November 11th, it was Armistice Day, November 11th, 19, you know, at 11, 11, 11 on November 11th, they were remembering the end of World War I, but they were getting ready for the beginning of World War II. And what's interesting about Irving Berlin is he was Jewish. And as he, he later recounted after reading about Kristallnacht, um, how profound that song occurred on November 11th after everything he'd read. And, um, you know, I just, I, I think, oh, and the other thing he added too is it says um, land that, it was supposed to read land that we love, but Kate changed it to land that I love. And Irving Berlin said he could, she couldn't have done a better addition because it is the land I love. And even his daughter went on to recount that that was his favorite addition to the song. I share all that with you tonight simply because what makes a nation moved to do what's right. And really it comes down to the foundation, whatever you believe is going to form whatever it is you live. And that's why Western theology is so important to study because it applies to the government that you have. And for anyone who thinks that my Godfather didn't know the Lord because he didn't say those words, the four spiritual laws and raise his hand. And I got news for you. He lived his faith without professing his faith. And we're sad in America today because we profess our faith, but we don't live it. These folks built a nation, took on fascist nations, bled and died so that we could sit here and rightly divide the word of truth, but not so that we can be inactive and pew potatoes, but so that we can change and be active and culturally transform the world. These are the covenantal promises. They're all embodied in Christ, and you've got a picture of it in history. And that... That's all I got tonight. God bless you guys.